If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're going to revisit a conversation we had last fall with former Alberto Culver Executive Chairman Carol Avenbernick. We spoke to Carol then about how she ran her family's business, eventually guiding it through its $3.7 billion acquisition by Unilever. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But first, we have an update. After that sale, Carol became more committed to her work as a philanthropist through the Lavin Family Foundation. We checked in with her recently to see how things have been going during the pandemic. She told us that back in March, she and her kids were worried about how local businesses were struggling and at the same time, how many people were going hungry. So they got in touch with one of their favorite restaurants and worked with a local church to deliver 100 pizzas three times a week. That program grew into the Lavin Family Foundation's Feed It Forward initiative. To date, they've committed over $3 million to more than 40 nonprofits. Carol estimates they've helped provide more than 300,000 meals so far. That's the kind of entrepreneurial and innovative thinking that helped Carol grow Alberto Culver. So we'd like to share Carol's Encore episode with you about what it's like to work with your parents, take over their billion-dollar business, and teach your own kids the importance of giving back. So Carol, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Your parents bought a small beauty supply business, right? And they grew it into a major consumer goods company, Alberta Culver. And many of our listeners know the products. They know St. Ives, VO5, Tresemme, the list goes on and on. Your parents were building this company while you were growing up. And what was that like? Both my mom and dad were working parents. And it was actually, I thought it was kind of cool. I had both parents home talking about business, talking about what they did, and they were a real team. They they loved what they did. They My mom, even though we lived four miles from the office, my mother left first. My father followed so she could beat him home. It was kind of a <laughs> funny family joke. Um, but I liked it. Um, honestly, I'm not sure my brother and sister did like it as much. Um, but for me, it was just part of what we were like growing up. You said your siblings weren't necessarily fans of it. You know, I say that now because, um, of course, my brother was the oldest, and he didn't want to go in the shampoo business. He moved to California and went into various things there. My sister never had any interest, so um, I was the only family member who wanted to work at Alberto. And uh, I just wonder if it comes back to the family conversation. And it was, you know, it was pretty absorbing, pretty all-absorbing as you're trying to build a business. And that's not only the good stuff, that's the tough stuff. I, I mean, I clearly remember, um, you know, we had a union strike or government killed one of the ingredients in one of our products or, you know, there were there were great times and there were tough times. And, you know, it, it absorbed our lives. It really did. For me, that was good. For them, I'm not sure it was so good. You were the only one of your siblings who went into the family business. So 
I'm wondering, did that cause tension between you and your siblings? My brother died of a drug overdose when he was in his early 40s. And uh, life, he was charismatic and beautiful and had lots of creative ideas. And um, but he just wasn't of the Midwest, if you will. Um, And my sister is a lovely, creative lady who's lives on a mountaintop in Colorado and doesn't work as you and I would, you know, call it work. She writes music and uh, has other interesting projects, but they didn't want anything to do with Culver. You know, they they liked the lifestyle they lived because of it, um, but no, they really didn't see themselves as a part of it. You grew up watching your parents work together in the business, so I'm just wondering how that shaped your idea about working with family? I went to Alberta right after college, and uh, my husband at the time came about seven years later, I think, and I I liked it. I mean, Howard reported to my father, and I reported to my father, so we never, you know, reported to each other. He was in the finance area, and I was in more of the operations, marketing, and and whatever, Um, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Over the course of 30 years of doing this, um, you know, there was some tension. And I will tell you honestly, I think my ex-husband didn't love being in a family business. But to this day, all three of my children are in family businesses with me now. And uh, and it's a privilege and a pleasure. So there's a lot of stuff that goes with it. Um, but overall, if you have a lot of respect and enjoy working with each other and learn from each other, I, I think it's one of the best things that can be. What are some of the stuff that goes with working with a partner? Well, um, when you have differing opinions on where a brand should go into what market, um, let's lay, lay the truth on the line here. So I was consumer. Howard was, frankly, strictly financial. And he did a great job of acquiring companies and then throwing them over the fence to the people who ran the businesses. Um, and we had a brand called Tresemme, and Tresemme was our fastest-growing hair care brand, and it was one of the fastest-growing hair care brands in the United States. And we wanted to take it to um, other markets. So we were, we had full plans on the table, completely under my authority to do so. We were taking it to the U.K., where we were number two in the market, um, where in the United States we were, let's say, number four. So the U.K. was one of our best-developed markets. It got to be a, a real a real tiff. He did not want it to go. And my team and I were positive it was the right thing to do. So you get into conflicts like that. Um, we eventually went. We took it. And Tresemme grew to be three times bigger than we had projected it to be in the U.K. And we didn't lose VO5 in the U.K. So sometimes you get into, you know, situations where that was my area of expertise and it was my 30 years in business, you know, learning those things versus his financial side that thought that we would be competing with ourselves. So, you know, you get into situations like that once in a while. But most of the time, it's okay. Do those situations carry into the home life, too? Like, are you still talking about the issue when you leave the office? Depends on how upset somebody was about it. <laughs> <laughs> we had this massive culture change at Alberto, probably our best new product ever. And uh, Harvard did a case study on it, and it really changed the trajectory of the consumer products business. So, you know, does that come home with us? Of course it does, you know, and how it affects people. And um, But a lot of the stories are fun and good, you know. So I think the whole family business thing is your children learn your values. You know, um, we were 
very comfortable. You know, we didn't have massive amounts of money. We had massive amounts of stock. Hmm. But when your kids see you going to work every day and finding passion in what you do, you're setting values that, you know, I think are powerful. And I wouldn't have changed a minute of that. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Carol explains how she used her creativity and rose through the ranks at her family's company, changed its culture, and kept her family together during a time of loss, breakups, and big deals. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. How did you start out at Alberto Culver? I started as a marketing staff assistant. I was paid $10,000. This was the mid-70s. I knew from the start that I was paid $4,000 less than the men. <laughs> Didn't like that, but Jeez. it was the way that it was. And StatiCard was uh, a product I came up with with inside of six months of coming to the company. And uh, then I got myself in the new products path and later developed Baker's Joy and Molly McButter and Mrs. Dash. And people say, well, why were you in the household side? Well, frankly, my father had his arms all over the toiletries side of our business. And uh, the household side, he kind of left alone a little bit. So the first four or five, six years that I was there, it was a fun place to play. Um, and I just worked my way up. Once you had something like Mrs. Dash, Mrs. Mrs. Dash was very important to us. I joined the company in 1974, and we were doing $125 million in sales. So... Um, Nice size, but not what Alberto turned out to be. And I was there for all those years of crazy, fantastic growth. So when Mrs. Dash came in and added $22 million to our sales, you know, the first year, it was a big thing for us. So it helped propel my career. And it also validated me being there and not just being, you know, my parents' daughter. How did you deal with some of the people who thought, you know, she's just here because she's her parents' daughter? You know, I think you deal with it the same way that you deal with um, having a name that's known around town and everything else. You just keep pushing forward and hoping some people will eventually get it. And I think the first new product I created, Static Guard, people, some people, my boss especially, remember crying that day, thought it was a fluke. Really? Then I had the second one, you know, and the second one validated, you know, I might just have a little bit of the same marketing savvy that my that my dad had. How did you come up with the idea for those products? Well, static art was pretty easy. I joined the company in June, and at Christmas I tried to wear a dress, but my dress clung, and I wanted to wear this white crepey thing to the company event and went to our lab and said, I have an idea for a product. And the interesting thing is static art is a quat system in a can, the same quat system you use in hair conditioners. So came up with static art and uh it's a product called um no salt at the time it was by norcliffe thayer and it had the best burke scores which were television advertising scores that had ever ever been had and my father we had sugar twin he said you will come out with salt twin well salt twin 
It was in a bottle that was way too big. It looked like a regular Morton salt container. It was made with potassium chloride that has a bitter, awful taste. And there's no way I was going to copy this thing. So my mother had a heart problem, and I, I'm a pretty good cook. So instead of using salt, I would mix spices. So I just threw out the idea of salt twin to Matt Sugar Twin and came up with Mrs. Dash, which was 14 savory flavors to shake your craving for salt. So, you know, different, you know, different things, different times. I remember when we were looking at um, new flavors for Mrs. Dash, um, I tasted, our labs had this stuff, and I tasted and I said, oh, my God, I'm always on a diet, always. And I tasted it and said, this must be really fattening. It was a butter flavor. And he goes, no, there's no, no calories in that at all. I said, what are you talking about? He said, no, it's, it's just maltodextrin and butter flavor and salt. And I said, oh, my God, we have a new product. We'll call it Molly McButter. And, you know, the name came later and everything else, but it was pure butter taste, four little calories. I know the culture change was a big project. Is there... One thing that you did that changed the culture, and what exactly do you mean by, I guess, changing the culture, too? There were 20 or 30 things we did, but two things that I think had a lot of power um, was we, well, let me back up. I was a working mom. I had high-risk pregnancies. I had to go to bed for six months with these pregnancies. I lost a baby that was stillborn. My first baby was born at four and a half pounds. So I wanted to be a mom. And I wanted to work. So the one thing was we validated everybody's what I call higher power. Could have been their kids, could have been their church, could have been their taking care of elder parents. We allowed people to be real people and still work at Alberto. And I will tell you, I don't think anybody can ever tell you they worked harder anyplace else than they worked at Alberto Culver. But when my daughter was playing in a traveling softball game, I would leave at 3 o'clock. You might see me on my computer at 4.30 in the morning. You know, I didn't care which 12 hours of the day you worked. And it became part of our corporate, you know, philosophy. The other thing we did was um, we had a saying that we coined. It was powerful growth yields the privilege to care. So when we started out, people did not have a great affinity to who we were. Um, you know, they didn't have, uh, didn't have the pride level in the company that they should have had. What we did was every time we did something uh, that improved our profit margins, we gave more money to charity, we improved our benefits, and we celebrated it with the organization. So the pride level just, you know, we'd adopt seniors, we'd, we did 50 different things, and everybody started to understand powerful growth yields the privilege to care. We were in business to make money. We needed to have people understand businesses are in business to make money and to carry that with a pride level. Um, so we did many, many things. How did you working at the company change your relationship with your dad and your mom? I laugh at this. My dad was my best friend until the day he died at 97. Um, on the other hand, in the mid-90s, we had a board-negotiated change of management. So our board wanted to sell the consumer products business, um, we had the Sally Beauty business, which was going gangbusters. We had 2,700 stores. Uh, most of the profit had come from Sally at that point, which was a complete reversal because in the 70s and 80s, most of the profit came from consumer. The consumer went through four or five bad years. And we had a board-negotiated change where uh, my husband and I said to my parents, you got three choices. We can agree to disagree and uh, sell 
you know, we can agree to disagree. Howard and I can leave the company and you all can run it. Um, we can agree to agree, sell the company and go on as a family. Or box three, you need to move up. You need to move up. You need to become the executive chairman and whatever my mom became. And you have to turn over this business to the second generation. A guy named um, John Ward out of the Kellogg School who uh, tells me that my father is the oldest living founder ever to turn over a business to a second generation, you know, businesses of significance. Two-year negotiated uh, change. But with that change, right after that came the culture change. Was it frustrating that your dad didn't want to step away? It was impossible. I mean, impossible. I have, I was taking, you know, I would write notes down the 52 times he would call me. I mean, no exaggeration, 14 times he would call me in a given day. <laughs> I asked people, what would my father rather have? You know, Alberto Culver stock at 30 or a Kentucky Derby winner. You know, everything was about VO5. I mean, that he was the consummate entrepreneur. Yeah, it was frustrating as hell. And But he adored me. Here's an interesting story for people. My father hand, handed me his wills when I was, I think, 40 years old. And I'm, you know, I'm at the company, and he said, go see if they make sense. Well, they didn't make sense. They were horrible. My mother was the co-founder of the company. She's a very bright woman. And the wills had taken two attorneys and made them primary oh, and her as the third trustee. And they could have outvoted her on anything, and they had the right to name future trustees. And I went into my dad's office, and I said, do you know what this says? He didn't believe me. I said, I had to call it out and show it to him. He is a big-picture guy, not a detail guy. I now read every document that a lawyer puts in, in front yeah. of my face just because, you know, be careful. Um, but the point is, my dad let me rework the estate and work with him in what he wanted, which, which was, you know, the corpus of everything we had. But if I want to change a brand at the company, hmm. it's a big deal, you know, a really big deal, even though it should have should have changed. So his values were not aligning with his actions, if he were. And uh, it was it was extremely difficult. Um, my mom eventually helped push it over the top and said, Leonard, we're going to lose him. You know, it's it's time. It's time for us to move up. And I, I think as a family... It was a crazy positive time because Howard and I knew that this company was going to grow and that we had the ability to change some things to make it work well. But it was it was a is a tough time and a wonderful time. And my dad started to get very excited about the growth of the company. He he never sold a single share of stock, so it was never about the money to him ever. It was about you know, these children that he had grown, and they were called VO5 and VO5 and VO5 and VO5. Even Tresemme, which which became our biggest brand by far, he liked it, but he loved VO5, you know, back in the way a lot of entrepreneurs do. What advice would you give to someone who's in a family business and just wanting that, their parent, to give them the opportunity to step up, to lead? Well, I think, first of all, you have to put the points on the scoreboard. You know, if you don't have the points on the scoreboard, if you don't have your own successes that you can point to in the world, meaning the company and the employees, understand, you know, that you're fully capable, you're probably not ready to make that move. Um, but if you hopefully you have a decent relationship with your parents and hopefully you can sit down and, and, and really, you know, have real honest conversation about 
like I said, we were we were truly, truly willing to walk away. So you don't want to have those conversations unless unless you're serious about you know what you're talking about. But there are many outstanding people out there now who help family businesses and build values together and build goals together. And I would advise anybody you know to get help like that. I would encourage anybody who's going into a family business to start somewhere else. If I had worked five years somewhere else with the success, I would have walked in with the credibility from the employees um, that I didn't have and had to earn. Um, but for the most part, I, it's all about communication. And, you know, you have to have you have to have quality people. You know, if your parents are not quality, you know, if they don't believe what you believe, you know, if if the values aren't there, if there's any sort of corruption going on, you know, you're in a you're in a different place. What's the key to making sure that the business drama doesn't affect the home, the family dynamic or the family, or is that even possible? It's hard to not bring it home when you're both when you're both in it. But I got to tell you something personally. I'd rather bring it home and have something serious to talk about and something that invigorates you. It gives you you know something that you're building together. And I think family teams working together. I I think it's pretty darn cool. So you had mentioned before the company had planned to sell off one of its major divisions, Sally Beauty, in 2006. But the investors didn't like the deal, and the deal was eventually called off. Around the same time your marriage to Howard broke up, really public divorce. How did you cope with all this? Uh, so um, people ask me, you know, say, you are incredibly strong. Well, I'm not. It's a big fake. <laughs> um, I had all these employees, you know, who see the two of us who've run this company together forever. And, you know, now we've split Sally and Alberto and, you know, what's going to happen? And with Howard gone, it's the place going to fall apart. And, all the rest of it. And uh, it was an extremely public divorce, and people made up the reasons why we were separating that weren't true. Um, Howard's fa- parents had been married for 60 years. My parents had been married for 50-odd years at the time. We, I was not somebody who experienced divorce in a family. So it was extremely hard. Having said that, you know, I, I have a lot of compassion for people going through divorce now because I had a job I loved, I had all the money I would ever need. I had kids who adored me. I had many friends who were supportive. And uh, it's still one of the hardest things. You know, your your vision of family is what family was, right? And even though you've had bumps in your marriage, you know, I, I'm somebody who sticks it out. So to make that decision, which was mine, frankly, um, was just a really tough thing to do. On the other hand, over time, uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, met a guy who became the love of my life, you know, a couple of weeks after we got divorced, not after we got separated. That took two years. But I met Bobby, and um, this makes me giggle. I mean, the whole thing makes me giggle. The unfortunate thing is Bobby died of a brain tumor a couple of years ago. But it was a fantastic eight years, and I wouldn't change a minute of it. So um, I don't know. I People say, how could you be up during a time like that? I wasn't up. I just wouldn't let the world crush me. Um and if you if you do, just think of all you're going to miss. Um, so one of the tricks I tell my friends when they're going through really tough times is go do something fun for other people. I threw a lot of parties for other people during that time. I did a lot of charitable work during that time. I you know I just tried to get away from myself and into you know into trying to make other people feel better. And it's it's a powerful thing. 
You spent 37 years in key executive roles at Alberto Culver till its acquisition in 2010 to Unilever for $3.7 billion in cash. What was it like to sell your family's company? You know, the hardest day I ever had was telling our employees because you can imagine we we became a very close-knit team after this culture change and rebuilding this whole thing together and, and everything else. It was it was so hard. Um Lots of things in the shampoo business had been happening for the last 10 years. Everybody had been merged into somebody else, and we were one of the very, very few, I think, two uh, remaining independent companies. Like, we had seven people at Walmart, and Procter, I think, had 42. I mean, you know, it's just interesting. After we sold, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, um, I think six months, seven months later, saying, Procter & Unilever at Shampoo Wars. If we were a private company, we would have never sold because um, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have been as profitable as we had been because of what's going on in those crazy markets. But uh, anyway, it was it was the thing to do. Um, but it, you know, I love building things and I love working with a team and and uh, to not have that um, personally was a really really hard thing. You didn't just relax on the beach after the acquisition. You got really even more involved into philanthropy. How come? Well, I had been on the board of Northwestern Healthcare for, I don't know, 15 years at that time, 20 years. And uh, they asked me to be chair. And I said, oh, no. You know, um, I was the first female chair. It was a top 10 healthcare system in the country. We tripled the size of it coincidentally while I was chair. So it was, uh, it was hard work and enjoyable and a great management team, so it was fun. So I run Polish Nickel, um, and we have pieces and parts of a number of companies. We also have a major racing stable. One of my sons has a pretty significant um, private equity business, and, and my daughter runs a foundation. I started a charity a long time ago for Northwestern called the Friends Apprentice, that's raised tens of millions of dollars for that hospital. So I kind of knew what I was doing. And we started something called Enchanted Backpack, which is just a kick. We started it two and a half years ago. We've touched 50,000 kids so far. We, I have this superpower, which is the ability to buy things at incredibly cheap prices. So we deliver to 50 schools a year, $40,000 worth of retail items to each school, at a cost of about $9,000. Every single school supply they need, coats, hats, mittens, gloves, athletic equipment, art supplies, incentive treasure chest items, shoes, earbuds, underwear, um, socks, hats. And, you know, it's it's been so much more fun than I ever thought it was going to be. And uh, we, we are just loving it. You've been pretty open with your kids about how much they're going to inherit. So I'm wondering, how did you decide to be so open? My kids now are, um, one's 41 or two, I should do the math. Another one's 38 and another one is 35. And uh, I just felt, well, first of all, when you get divorced, you get to decide to do what you want to do as you want to do it. So I started family meetings right after my divorce happened so I could kind of run the ship the way I wanted to run the ship. But I feel it's fair for the kids to understand what they will have and where the money will go. And um, they are fully aware that a big chunk of it is never going to be touched. It'll sit there and hopefully keep a much, you know, generations going for a long time. So much of it's going to charity, what they can expect. I just, I, I have the right to change my mind. Um, 
but they are partners in what we do. They're partners in the charitable endeavors. Peter, my middle son, is in Polish Nickel with me. My oldest son runs our horse business. My daughter was a school teacher for seven years and now has started a water safety foundation to stop childhood drowning or help prevent childhood drowning. These these kids are they're good people, and uh, our values are aligned, so we live really nicely. Yes, do they have more than many people have? Of course they do. But are they very comfortable that a huge chunk of this money is going to sit there and be invested for the future? Yeah, they're aware and they know. But I find that being honest and open and we created our values together. The There's a family history. There's a philanthropic drive that we, you know, it's all written down on paper. And uh, I think it builds a better family. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trinae Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Bray Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.